Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is Dr. Corey Lavin, and she's a neuroscientist, a biomedical engineer, and a tech entrepreneur. She founded Anthrotronic, which is a tech innovation firm that made a robot to help kids with disabilities, a sensor glove to train surgeons, a virtual reality system to study astronauts in space, and a computer game to track your brain health. And if that wasn't enough, she also authored a book called Inventing the Future Stories from a Techno-Optimist. Welcome to the show, Kari Lavin. My dear Kari, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kate. So great to be here with you, finally. Well, I know I have known you for many, many, many years. We are young global leaders together. Not so young now, but wiser. <laughs> And I want to start by saying, and I've always thought this about you, and I always feel like I want to be intentional and tell the people that I adore and admire, and you are absolutely one of them. You're a badass, and you are one of those people that is always there to support, and I admire you so much for that. You obviously, you know, like everyone, you have your work agendas and We've gone to conferences all over the world together. We've had so many adventures. You are always there supporting others. And I think that is such a huge quality. So I wanted to start with that and tell you how much I admire you and appreciate you. Well, I I really appreciate you saying that because one of the things that I always try to do is show up, show up for my friends, show up for people I care about and and people who need me. And sometimes I can't show up, but you know, I'm I'm human just like everybody else, but I I try and show up. And so I really appreciate that you recognize that and appreciate it about me. I really do. You. And you really do show up for everybody, even when you don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> Corey, you I always joke. It's a bit tongue in cheek, but I always say that you're my favorite rocket scientist, but you really are a rocket scientist. That's what's crazy, right? <laughs> you are one of these superhuman, incredibly smart, as I said, badass women leaders. And I, as you know, I've been reading your book, Inventing the Future. And I sort of picked up the book and I told you this when we had Nibbles together last night, but I've always been a bit afraid of the book because I have always thought, okay, this is going to be way over my head. My favorite rocket scientist has written this and it's going to be in words that I'm not going to understand. Lo and behold, I start reading the book and I can't put it down. I'm up half the night and it's just amazing, your story, and you've written it in a way that is so easy to digest and easy to understand. And you know, the biggest thing I got out of it was you're just like me in a way. Like we've done mm. completely different things in our lives. We couldn't be more different as individuals, but we've gone through a very similar journey. Yeah. So congratulations on the book. I know you're a bestseller now. It's amazing. I hope that we can, I can do my art show and you can do your book signing and we can do it simultaneously because this week is the month celebrating women. And I'm going to put this podcast out on March 9th. March 8th is International Day of the Women. 
I can't think of anybody more deserving than you for us to celebrate women through. By the way, I encourage everybody to read this book. It's absolutely fascinating, especially for you know mothers like Corey and I, we're both mothers, and we're thinking about, well, what does this world look like for our kids, right? And so Corey has written really about science and invention and technology that is going to serve the future. So my first question to you, my dear, is you write in your book, if you share technology across disciplines, then you can solve more problems. Tell us what you mean by that exactly, because I have my thoughts that I'd like to put out there, but I want to hear from you what inspired that quote. Well, okay, so where to start? Basically, collaboration, teamwork, creativity, those are all things that this book celebrates. For 20 years, I've been an inventor, and I don't invent in a vacuum. I invent with teams of cross-discipline people who want to solve really interesting problems. We put the first virtual reality system on the International Space Station. We developed instrumented gloves to train surgeons how to do robotic surgery. We developed robots for kids. These are all projects that take people who have super creative minds and teamwork skills and collaborate. And they're big projects. They're not just developing a widget in a garage, which is usually what people think of when they think of inventors. And they also think of boys, right? They don't think of girls as being an inventor. So so this book was, you know, part celebration of the creative process and the inventions that my company has done over the past 20 years. It was part inspirational message for young people, both men and women who are maybe young in their careers or maybe even still students. And it was also part celebration of my journey, particularly a love letter to my parents um, who both passed while I was writing the book. Yeah. Yeah. Of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm so sorry. I, I didn't realize that until I read the book. I'm so, so sorry. As you know, I've lost my parents also very recently and my brother. And to give a gift like that in the name of your parents is is just amazing. So as I'm reading the story, early on in your career, you invented some robots Mm -hmm. called Cosmobot, which is a robot to guide children with disabilities to effective learning. Tell us about that. Like, did you just wake up one day and go, okay, I'm going to build a robot? Like, how does that, how does that work? (laughs) Yeah, no, it doesn't just work like that. I don't know how to tell the story in a short way, but I will try. I mean, the short story is that I was super excited about emerging technologies in the medical space. And what that meant at the time, this was mid-90s, sensors. How could we use wearable sensors, for example? You know, right now, you know, all of our iPhones have sensors that measure when we pick it up, when we turn it around. Those type of sensors didn't even exist for consumers at the time. I mean, they did, but they were very expensive. And uh, you, you know, had to go to a specialized store or order them online. And these are usually accelerometers is is what they're called. That's in each of our phone. And it measures the tilt, everything in in relation to, to movement. And so I was really interested in sensors. I was interested in virtual reality, which is still an emerging technology. And it, and it was 25 years ago and things like robots. 
And so I was a professor of biomedical engineering and we built a big center. It was like a $25 million center that was funded by both the military and Department of Education to look at these type of technologies. So I was interested in the technologies. And then the last piece of the puzzle was I was interested in kids. And the reason why I was interested in kids, and it, and it was kind of hilarious because when we were trying to raise money for when I spun off the company, you know, venture capitalists would say, oh, isn't that so sweet? You like children. I'm like, well, you know, not particularly, <laughs> but all children have the same design specifications. Yeah. Every child is trying to learn receptive and expressive language skills, and they just do it with different skills at different times, depending upon their abilities. So all children have the same design specs. That's why I chose children. Mm. You'd mentioned that at a certain point in your book, you needed to get some funding and you went mm -hmm. off with Carl, <laughs> your CFO. I imagine that Carl, he seems lovely from the way you write about him, but you know, an older white man with a tremendous amount of Silicon Valley experience. So you and Carl go into this fancy club and, you know, it's full of white men in gray suits and they're, you know, <laughs> he described this scene, which I could have described the same scene over and over again in the work that I've done. Mm -hmm. And you write, one man commented, oh, it's so sweet you're working with kids. And the other one drawled, you must have a big heart gag. <laughs> so you, you needed money. And I mean, this is something that I do want to delve into. You know, it's, I think, rare to have a woman neuroscientist like yourself doing this work. And I'm guessing that it is a predominantly male-dominated industry, certainly technology as in general. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, I was yes. the only female professor in the entire school of engineering. The entire school of engineering. I was the only female professor. Wow. Yeah. So with that, Kari, I've gotten to know you so well, you know, over the years. And you're still a girly girl, and you're obviously an extremely smart, articulate, nerdy, you know, professory type, but you're still a girly girl. You like makeup, you like clothes, you know, you like doing all the stuff that we like doing, as in us girls on the other side. <laughs> but did you find yourself changing the way that you put yourself forward, especially in these, in these situations where you were talking to VCs and trying to get money? And in the industry in general, were you one of the lads or did you stay the same? Like, how did you sort of manage to do what you do successfully as a woman in a man's world? Yeah, that's, I mean, it, that's something that obviously we've both dealt with. We all deal with as women and we continue to deal with. And I think for me, I fell back on, I was a woman with a PhD from MIT and don't mess with me. I would have yeah. used a different word, but <laughs> uh, I know this is supposed to be family friendly. You know, we all suffer from imposter syndrome at various points in our lives, but I had kind of that, that ace in the hole. You know, there were very few people who I was asking money for or who, you know, VCs, they pretend they know more than you do. Men in general pretend they know more than you do. <laughs> and I could almost always trump them with, well, I'm the one with the PhD from MIT. And I'm not saying I whip that out at every moment, but in not only in the back of my head, but it also other people would introduce me that way. I mean, that is a common way I get introduced as PhD from MIT. So clearly it's cachet that I can use to 
to have the credibility. And it's ridiculous that that should have to be there. But I think we use what we have. We all use what we have. The things that make us stand out, the things that give us confidence, whether explicitly or implicitly. Yeah. Well, I don't have a PhD from MIT. And, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot where we do use what we have. And I don't think I've consciously done it, but I definitely have have sort of led with that sexuality on my end because I don't have an MIT degree or, or PhD. But did you find yourself, do you think, changing the way you dress and act in these scenarios? Kate, one of the things that I've always admired about you is you walk in the room and you demand attention. Like there is, when you walk in a room, there is no one who is going to not notice you. I found that I had to fight to get myself noticed. And so it wasn't so much in the way I dressed. I don't remember if I wore suits more or I don't even remember exactly how I dressed. Probably I should have paid more attention to how I dressed. But I found that I had to be you know, more aggressive. You know, if if a guy walked in the room and introduced himself to everybody but me, I would have to get up, pull out my card, walk over, introduce myself. And a little bit of it is, you know, sitting at the table, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But I think the other strategy that I used was almost the opposite. It was, I don't speak, I listen. And then when I speak, I demand that everyone listens. Like I wait until everyone else has talked themselves out and then that's when I make my move. And everyone has to listen because I haven't spoken. So I think that's a common strategy. Yeah, I've seen you do that. And and we've been in situations where, you know, we've been at many conferences together. We've been to Davos multiple times. We've shared tiny little apartments, slept on the floor, written op-eds together, really just supporting each other. And, you know, it's a real case of women supporting women, which is Absolutely amazing. I cherish those moments, always will. And, you know, the hustle, we were talking about this recently, the hustle that we have to go through, right? You are definitely more reserved than I am. You are a great listener. And I think that's your sort of superpower. But on superpowers, what would you say is your superpower? What have you put your success down to? Oh, can I only have one? <laughs> I only have one, but you can have as many as Oh, tell you me want. yours first. Tell me yours first. Mine is recognizing champions. Mm. Like that's my superpower. And people might think, okay, that's a lame superpower. But you know what? It's really not. Because if you can see something in someone and help that person along, you're a winner. If you just do that, mm. which is really all I've done in my career. If you think about it, I recognize champions and then accomplished my own goals and my passions through those champions. So that's my superpower. Yeah, I I can't think of one superpower. I, I would say building consensus, trying to get people on the same page. I'm really good at that. And I don't know, my superpower, I would say, is I get stuff done. I mean, I am super goal-oriented in the sense of, I just want to make things happen. I want to connect the dots, whether it's connecting people, whether it's building a thing, it's, I want to get something done. Yeah. And you know what? I've seen you in action and you are very, very good at building relationships. And then, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, 
You're incredible at keeping those friendships and those connections going and then supporting those people. You know, that is the superpower of yours that perhaps you haven't recognized, but you are so good at it. Now, to get back to your book, in your book, you talk about pivoting. And I use that word a lot because as entrepreneurs, right, we invent things, we find gaps, and then we try to build a market for it. I know that you were doing that with your CosmoBot. You were trying to build a market for it and off raising money and then trying to sell it and build this company. But you say here to succeed in meeting your goal, you have to pivot. And that is, as I said, a term that us entrepreneurs use all the time. How have you done that in disrupting technology? Oh, boy, I do that all the time. Do you want me to talk specifically about how we did it with Cosmobot or just more generally... Yeah, I've I've become very close to Cosmobot. I have to be honest. I like him. I presume it's a him. I like him very much. Or they? Should we call? Should we call? Cosmobot prefers they them pronouns. Yes. Yeah. So I admire them, and I have a close relationship with Cosmobot now. So, yes. How did you pivot with Cosmobot? Because it was quite a long journey, right? And you were just starting out in building this company. So there were many pivots along the path with Cosmobot, and um, I'll mention one of them, which was that there was no market for an educational robot. I'd argue that there might not be a market now for an educational robot like Cosmobot. There are now many educational robots on the market, but none which had the capabilities that Cosmobot did. I mean, you have to realize at the time, I mean, smartphones didn't even exist. We had a handheld computer called a compact IPAC that were the guts of Cosmobot. We had wearable sensors that were expensive. So there was no market for Cosmobot, even though we had proven the need. We had done the research. We had kids using it, therapists, parents. But we were very attached to Cosmobot. You think you're attached to Cosmobot. You can imagine. I mean, we loved Cosmobot. So what we ended up doing is we ended up developing a virtual Cosmobot. We developed educational software starring Cosmobot. And maybe not everything we loved about Cosmobot could come to fruition because now it was a virtual robot, but we designed a whole universe with Cosmobot, with Cosmobot's friends, with Cosmobot's playground that looked very susical. And we developed a whole educational curriculum and interface, the same device that we used to control Cosmobot the robot, we now use to control Cosmobot the character. And we were able to use it with kids with all sorts of abilities and and disabilities like ADHD and ADD, autism, cerebral palsy. I mean, we worked with kids with a variety of abilities to access this educational software. So in the end, we really brought Cosmobot to life. Mm. And you know what? I love this. Having a daughter who she's challenged with dyslexia and also ADD. You know, I just know that she and Cosmobot would get along like a house on fire. But in in all seriousness, she uses technology now every single day to get through her studies, to do her exams. And, you know, the school's integrated into, into her daily learning. And so I want to learn more from you now. Obviously, Cosmobot was 20 years ago. Let's bring it up a little bit more to today. You talk about the brain and a whole chapter in your book. Tell us about that and and how that now has taken shape. Yeah. So, you know, in the past decade, really, we finally have started talking about the brain. And unfortunately, it was because of 
problems, concussion crisis, Alzheimer's, we finally have started to pay attention to our brain. And, you know, and I say this all the time, but every time we walk into the doctor's office, they take our blood pressure, our temperature, our height, our weight, but they don't do anything to measure our brain. And they still don't. And so we got a contract from the military to develop a brain vital. So just like a thermometer, but a thermometer for the brain. And the reason why was because during the concussion crisis, you know, our men and women were deployed to Afghanistan and they would have a blast injury and they may or may not have gotten a concussion, but they would come back and the suicide rate was going through the roof and the military just didn't know what to do. The existing tests for cognition are so general that they couldn't tell whether it was concussion or PTSD or depression or any of these things because everything affects your brain. As soon as you're deployed, you have combat fatigue and stress. And we know fatigue and stress affect our brains. So we developed a brain vital, which was a very sensitive but not specific app. We were one of the very first medical apps that goes right on your phone that was cleared by the FDA for medical use. So we were one of the very first apps to get cleared by the FDA. Uh, I think it was like 2014, they started clearing apps for looking at brain health. And so basically you can think of it as a scientifically validated brain game. You open up the app on your phone, you need to have a prescription because it's a medical device. And then you access the app and you take a very quick five minute test and it's a brain vital. And it says, has something about your brain function changed? So you need to go to the doctor or the doctor can do it in the office. So could I download this app? You could, but you wouldn't access it because you don't have a prescription. Your doctor would have to prescribe it for you. That was the only way we could get reimbursement. Yeah, this is so interesting because I remember having a, not to drop names, but I remember having a dinner with Bill Gates and I asked him, what's the biggest thing you worry about? It's obviously not money. It's obviously not technology. You know, he's doing incredible work all over the world. And he said, my brain. He said, it's such an important organ to me. He reads like 10 books a week. He's terrified of losing control of his brain. And I share that with him. As one goes through, you know, perimenopause, you start to, you know, have brain fog. And I mean, I forget about entire conversations I've had with people. And of course, then I think I'm developing early uh, Alzheimer's. (laughs) I give talks all the time. And I'll basically tell your audience how I open these talks a lot of the times, which I'll say, how many of you have misplaced your keys as you're walking out the door and can't find your keys? Almost everybody raises their hand. I say, how many of you have forgotten someone's name that you thought you knew pretty well? And again, all the time. So I say, how do you know if that's normal or if you have early onset Alzheimer's? You don't. You don't because we've never measured brain. We don't have that brain vital. I'm inspired now by by this podcast and by you, as always. I want to test my brain. What does one do? Ah, <sighs> So, you know, sigh. I know. I mean, the problem is that doctors are still not using the tools. They're only using the tools if you already are diagnosed with something. We're still not using that brain vital. So there's things you can do to keep your brain healthy. You know, your brain needs oxygen. So exercising, you know, your brain needs good nutrition. 
and your brain needs rest, so sleep, and it needs novelty, so it needs to learn new things. So doing those four things will help keep your brain healthy. You know, there really is no test that anyone is doing to track, like we, you know, we have body mass index. We aren't doing that for the brain. And so unfortunately, there is no way to know. So the best you can do is be proactive and try and keep your brain healthy. Well, lately, as you know, I've been on a bit of a health kick. I actually just had a physical. And for the first time in my life, they told me my cholesterol was high. I mean, shock horror. I mean, you know how I eat. And I I just couldn't understand it. And so I dramatically changed my diet now. And, you know, my brain is the only thing that I never check. And I feel it constantly. Do you know that I found my cell phone in the fridge the other day? It's like, (laughs) what was I thinking? I searched high and low in the house and couldn't find my phone. I had to wait for my daughter to get home so she could call me. And the fridge started ringing, you know. That is the only thing. The only thing I use my iWatch for is to find my phone. That is the only thing I use my iWatch for. Well, at least we're all in the same boat. And, you know, I remember my dear late father who just lost everything. His glasses, his pen, his phone, I mean, his keys. I mean, you would think at this point that we would put them in the same place all the time. But no, we don't. We don't. We continue to lose everything. Kari, I want to get back to you and some of the challenges that you've had building this remarkable career as a scientist, a female scientist, because as you say, there's not that many of you. What are some of the challenges that you have found? And please speak honestly, because I think this will be very motivating for others who who are perhaps, you know, like me, are not scientists, but were, you know, strong female leaders. And I think that we've all probably experienced the same kind of barriers. Yeah. You know, I have no problem speaking honestly and frankly. What I do have a hard time articulating, though, are barriers because I don't necessarily, I didn't necessarily see them as barriers at the time because I was always just finding my own route, right? You know, and if one route seemed to be closed, I would you know, find another way. I wasn't, I didn't have a bulldog personality, which was to, you know, go through any barrier. It was to, it was more of a, I don't know, a fox. Like I just found my way. And I say this all the time. I didn't really care about what I wanted to be. I just wanted to do things. And there were so many interesting things to do. You know, so for example, one summer I was trying to decide between two research labs that were really interesting you know, one of them focused more on sleep and circadian rhythm. And one of them was more about the balance system and the inner ear. And, you know, two very scientifically based things. I went to work with the cooler people, like the people who seemed just more fun and, and great to work with. And that always seemed to serve me well throughout the years. You know, there's, there's lots of things you could do. Do it with the good people. I absolutely had a no asshole rule in everything I've ever done. And and that doesn't mean that sometimes you have to deal with assholes. But so the assholes can be a barrier. So avoid them as much as possible. I think the lack of role models. I mean, there weren't other women faculty who could advise me how not to burn out as a faculty member. And so I burnt out super fast and left to start a company. I mean, yes, there were lots of male colleagues who who mentored me in a way, but I think that lack, that was a barrier. Um, You know, and I think just the constant 
walking into a room, as you know, and maybe being the only woman there, maybe not, but having to navigate that social dynamic is exhausting. It's just exhausting. So I would say that's a barrier because sometimes maybe I didn't go after an opportunity because I just didn't have the energy to deal with the bullshit. You and I were lucky to go to Harvard together, sponsored by the World Economic Forum. And I found you one day sort of weeping quietly to yourself in the corner and and asked you what had happened. Um, I still remember it. It was so long ago. It was probably, I don't know, 13 years ago, but I still remember that incident. What happened? Yeah. Wow. What a terrible image of me weeping in the corner. <laughs> I was probably weeping in the bathroom. Maybe you were in the bathroom. I don't know, but you were crying. I mean, let's yeah, call yeah, it yeah, as sure. And I sure, sure, sure. Kind Absolutely. Of comfort you, Absolutely. And you told me what had happened. And yeah, I was yeah. terrified. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was really devastating experience. Um, you know, the Harvard leadership module was fantastic. I mean, it was it, overall, it was an incredible experience and really gave me confidence being a technologist to see what I had to offer and what I brought to the table as a leader. Like, so for me, it was transformative. So let me say that first. So as part of this, as you know, they split us up into groups um, of about six people. And these were our leadership group that in the best case was a group that not only you formed a bond with during that time, but that you took with you for the rest of your lives. I mean, I know people who are, and I think including yourself, who still are in in touch with their leadership group. So we had formed a leadership group and every morning, a different person in the group would kind of present what they're working on. And, and I had just presented that morning and we had just done the shift, the pivot for Cosmobot. We had just brought our educational system to market. So I was an entrepreneur and I was maybe one of the first I was maybe one of the only people at the leadership module who actually was had brought a product to market that time. I'm not saying there weren't other entrepreneurs, but yeah, I was pretty excited about going to market with my first product. And there was a guy in our group who he saw himself as larger than life. He actually was a child actor and he tells everyone he has a big footprint in this world and huge personality, huge personality. And his response to me presenting you know, what I was doing and what I was working on was that I was a self-promoter and he didn't appreciate my self-promotion. And aside from the fact that I don't think I was being self-promoting, that was sort of the goal that we were supposed to actually talk about what we were doing. And then number two was a safe space. And then of course, you know, the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, it was just, and it was so bad. I mean, it, I can't even convey how awful it was. But what was so, it was so awful that our group disbanded after that day. And we were the only leadership group, I think, in the history of the Harvard module to to disband because it was not a safe space for us. No one felt safe after that. Nobody did, not just me. And the horrific thing about that is the whole idea of these breakfasts were to talk about pain points and struggles mm-hmm. with you know, mm-hmm. what happens stays here and, you know, we are here to support one another. And I'm sure you went in with that mentality and got crushed by this person who is probably one of the biggest self-promoters that exists in this world. The point is that that is, you know, it was a male as well, and it's a form of abuse and bullying. 
and it was not okay. And I mean, I can literally, I have so many stories similar to that in my career, both sexist and also just talking down at me. And I hope that when you've gone through those, you've had, you know, as good friends as you were to me. I mean, you you supported me during that episode and, and other people there. And, you know, he got a talking to from other of my friends. You know, it, it was this was it was definitely huge peer support. And so I hope when you have gone through those times that you've found similar support. Thank you. I have and I haven't. People that I've thought that had my back have not had my back and that the worst points of my life have shown that. And the sense of community, I think you and I, we talk about it a lot, really appreciate the communities that we're in, right? The young global leaders, the shapers, these these communities. And you you were one of the early birds at the YGL. When you were a tech entrepreneur before you became yes. a YGL, yeah, you were one of the first young global leaders. And so, you know, you're truly a pioneer, Corey, in every sense. And I, I just feel very blessed to have you in my life. And you're constant. I trust you implicitly and admire you so much that I just feel very, very blessed to have you in my life. And I think that we can all learn a lot from you of how you handle yourself, both in friendship, but also professionally. You're really inspirational. Thank you so much, Kate. I love talking to you. I love being with you. And hopefully this is, you know, continued conversation, right? <laughs> well, shock horror, we're out of time. So I want to remind everybody that Kari's book is amazing. Would you like to tell everybody, Kari, where they can find your book? Sure. Inventing the Future. Stories from a Techno Optimist is on Amazon. That's the easiest way. Or And you can go to inventthefuture.tech is another way to find it, inventthefuture.tech. Kari, thank you so much for being on the show. You're amazing. Thanks, Kate. Love you. Love you more. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body, and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code PODCAST10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.